You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. This episode of Market Champions is brought to you by Simplify ETFs. For more information, go to simplify.us. No Simplify ETFs will be discussed in this episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today I've got Marco Papik from Clock Tower Group. Marco is also the author of Geopolitical Alpha, which I think came out last year. I think it's a phenomenal book when it comes to thinking about the dynamics of uh, geopolitics and how that intersects with markets and investing. So Marco, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's phenomenal to have you on. Thank you so much, Sri. I'm I'm really happy to be on. Yep. And so Marco, I wanted to first start by talking about uh, sort of a bit about your background. So, you know, you, you sort of, uh, you, you started off at BCA Research and then, you know, you left as Canadians and ran all the way to California. So, so could you talk a bit about how you actually got into, uh, into geopolitics and how you found your niche, which is sort of like finance and geopolitics and where that intersects? Yeah, I mean, I found this niche because I was really bad at all the other niches. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I started off in academia. So I was doing a PhD in political science at University of Texas in Austin. And uh, after um, like basically two years in the program, I realized academia wasn't really for me. I mean, just as an example, um, I think one of my very few academic publications is on the 2002 Ukrainian election. And I worked on it from 2006 to 2008 with a professor. And I think it got published in 2012. Right. So think about that. You get something published in 2012 about something that happened in 2002 that doesn't really matter at all. And, you know, I I just wasn't really into I wasn't really good at that. So um, right down the street was a political risk consultancy, a geopolitical intelligence firm, as uh, they used to call themselves, Stratford. It was just down the street from basically University of Texas. So uh, two years into my academic career, I was like, look, I want to hedge myself, hedge my bets. And. I took a job while I was doing a PhD, which was uh, pretty intense and pretty pretty nutty. It, it wasn't really going to last too long. Uh, but yeah, so I, I actually started a career not at BCA Research, but in political risk. Right. And there, I think I was pretty good at that. But I think what I realized very quickly is that what I didn't like about working in political risk is that it's very subjective. And so like at the end of the year, we would do these annual um, you know, uh, report cards, and everyone was always right on everything, you know, because... And I always use this example, like uh, if you forecast that there will be political volatility and turbulence in Turkey, and uh, then like a deputy finance minister resigns, you're right. Mm-hmm. If there's a coup d'etat, you're right. You know, like, and it's, well, there's a pretty big gap between those two events. And so we would always have these fights at the end of the year, like who got a better grade on a report card, but it was all just subjective nonsense. And I didn't really like that. Now, um, you know, to be fair to the management of the firm, they, they tried to make it so it was objective, but it was just really difficult because human beings are involved. And right. there's no way to really measure, you know, what's right or what's wrong. And what, what really appeals to me from, from finance and intersecting politics, geopolitics and finance is that you can make a forecast in the geopolitical and political realm, uh-huh. but then you put on the bet um, in the financial realm. Right. based on your forecast and then you have an objective analysis whether you were right or wrong based on whether the asset moved the way you, you said and i'm very competitive 
I want to be right. I think I'm motivated by that more than anything else. And so I like that. Yeah. Uh, I completely agree. And I think one of the one of the factors that George Soros has talked about in the alchemy of finance, sort of how one markets and economics, just generally speaking, is a social science. But then what the financial markets allow you to do is you're allowed to have that quantitative data. And if you make a hypothesis, sort of you have a quantitative assessment of whether your hypothesis was right or wrong. So I think that's I think that's the coolest part about. Uh, yeah, it's the bookie. Like the market is your bookie and yeah. you're betting on global events and you're like the casino is the market mm -hmm. the market is the bookie it's going to decide which way things go whether yeah. you were right or not and and i and i think that's interesting now the problem is that a lot of investors they confuse the political and the financial realm and they think that there is a normative you know there's morality involved when politics is involved and i think that's very dangerous because you're you're simply forecasting where the world is going not the way it should be. And I think that's a really important distinction when you're trying to do political analysis for finance and for markets. Yep, I completely agree with that. Um, you know, I wanted to kick off by talking a bit about what's going on with Ukraine right now. And so, you know, broadly, you know, the broadly the real question is, so how does it play out from here? So, you know, Russia initially invaded Ukraine and in a way their sort of hope was that it would be a quick win. It would be a pretty decisive victory. But then the issue was, they're, they're in a way, even though they've gained some amount of land, they're sort of stalled. It's sort of stalled in terms of what they've been able to do there. So, how do you think it plays out from here, and what do you think sort of the end game for that is? Well, you know, like let's let's go up thirty thousand feet first before we get into the specifics. And I, I think what's important is that to understand where we are basically in sort of the big geopolitical cycle and. When Russia invaded Ukraine, there was a lot of op-ed writing about how this is now a game changer, how this is something different. This is a catalyst for a new world. Uh -huh. I'm sure you read a ton of that. Like, we're in a new world now. This is new. This is like, wow. And <clears throat> that's important to understand. There's like three things that Russia's invasion of Ukraine can be. It can be, one, a catalyst for a completely new world we've not lived in before. Something new. We're, we're going from one system to a different system. Mm -hmm. Two, it can be the end point of a system. And it could be a sort of a um, a pre-run, a pre-game of a cataclysmic event like World War III. Right. That's the second thing it can be. Or it can be simply one of many events that has happened in a particular geopolitical system. Right. And I think it's I think it's that third. I think that there's nothing that Ukraine changes. The world has been multipolar, which is simply a way of saying that no single or two countries are in charge. Yeah. Um, it's a messy world. It's a world where countries are going to have wars often, and they're going to not necessarily spiral out of control. You know, and that's that's where I think we are. And so I think that we should expect as investors, but also as just observers, as as humans living in the system, I think we should expect more of the type of wars that Ukraine presents, which is basically a pretty serious conflict, lots of casualties, a lot of refugees. But not necessarily uh, something that's cataclysmic or phase shifting. It's part of a system that we're in. And political science, both theoretical political science that uses game theory uh, to formalize the context that you're in, and also historical political science where you use empirical evidence from the past, they're very, very clear on what kind of a world multipolar world is. It's a world full of you know, regional powers like, like Russia, uh, invading their neighbors or trying to expand their sphere of influence. It doesn't necessarily spiral spiral out of control. Now, um, 
That said, Russia seems to have, you know, bitten more than it can chew. You know, I've, I've used this analogy. Russia is like a dog chasing a car. And in this particular instance, the dog actually caught the car and it's holding onto that bumper. You know, it's like grab the teeth are in and it's being dragged by this vehicle. Uh, at some point, the dog is going to have to like decide, like, is it really worth it? Because it's not really that tasty. You know, it's kind of a rusty bumper and, you know, I got to like let go. Um, it's it it was simply really really stupid decision to invade Ukraine. It's a country that is uh, much larger than Iraq. It's about three times the territory of Iraq, and it has a population double of Iraq. And you know, when the United States went into Iraq, eighty percent of the public was opposed to Saddam Hussein. I like had enough of it. The Shias and the Kurds together basically made about twenty eighty uh, percent of the population. Only twenty percent were Sunnis somewhat loyal to uh, Saddam Hussein. In this particular situation, um, I think the Russians massively overestimated the percent of population that was still in favor of some sort of a, you know, Russian sphere of influence. And in particular, I think they were using previous electoral results where pro-Russian candidates legitimately did well. So for example, Viktor Yanukovych won a fair election, a pro-Russian candidate, if you will. He won a fair free election, there was no real like, you know, inconsistencies or no, no serious cheating. And he won against the Orangists, the sort of pro-Western bloc. He won because he appealed to the Russian-speaking population in the East, saying like, look, I mean, we're going to work on getting into the EU, but we're also going to respect our sort of, you know, like Slavic Orthodox Russian heritage. Right. Um, and, uh, and what happened in 2014 is that when Russia basically annexed Crimea and when it also fomented rebellion in Donetsk and Luhansk, the two oblasts that make Donbas, they really lost a lot of Russian-speaking Ukrainians. And so by 2022, when they decide to invade, you know, basically eight years later, Russian-speaking Ukrainians are Ukrainian. And they are, by and large, no longer in any way sympathetic to the Russian, um, you know, sphere of influence or goals. And so that's that's where we're at an impasse now. I don't see how Russia can break that impasse. So I think we have a stalemate. Now, what does that mean for uh, the markets? And we can talk about the Ukrainian um, offensive in Kherson, which is ongoing right now. I mean, we're recording this on August 30th. So, you know, let's see what happens on that front. But what I would say right now is this. Markets respond to the change in the objective measure of geopolitical risk. Now, that objective measure of geopolitical risk is difficult to ascertain. There's no quantitative measure of right. geopolitical risk, although some firms are trying to do it. My good friend um, over at GeoQuant, um, Mark Rosenberg, has created some objective quantitative measures of geopolitical risk. Mm -hmm. But let's say there's some measure called G. And that measure, in my view, if we're in a stalemate in Ukraine, is not flat. Uh -huh. And it's going to be flat for a very long time. It's not moving up or down. The problem is the geopolitical risk premium is a derivative of the subjective measure G. You know, and so if the objective measure is flat, its derivative is going to collapse. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happening. I think that's what should happen to a lot of assets that have gone up, that have been bid up because of the uh, crisis in Ukraine. They should start to dissipate. We've already seen that with softs, some of the soft commodities, wheat. Uh, I suspect that oil, although it's down already 20%, I think oil prices could have more downside if that 15, 20% geopolitical risk premium just dissipates from the oil markets as that objective measure of risk is flat. Now, obviously, I could be wrong. The Russians could double down. They could reinvade Kiev. I just think that it's pretty clear they're exhausted and they don't have the material um, necessary to do that. 
And they're not, most importantly, and this is something that here in the West, we don't talk about at all. Russia has very few friends. We hyperventilate about the China-Russia friendship, but it's a vacuous friendship. If President of Russia, Vladimir Putin, has to go hat in hand to Tehran to buy some like, you know, third grade drones. I mean, like, Sri, did you know that Iranians make good drones? Like, I didn't, <laughs> apparently, you know, like, so he, he went to Iran to get drones. And it's like, why can't you just go to China? China has world-class drones. Well, because a couple of months ago, and most people in the West did not see this media item because they were blinded by biases, but China banned exports of drones to Russia. Um, and that's that's where, you know, Russia's really in a bind. I mean, everyone and their mother is arming Ukraine. Nobody's really arming Russia. And eventually, they're just not going to have enough sophisticated technology or the manpower to, to do much more than what they've already done. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, con- the, 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 the point that you made in the middle about how we're starting to see the assets that were primarily bid up by the Russia-Ukraine situation start to see their price rises dissipate, I think... Well, I think I wanted to also get your thoughts on sort of this chart that's been circulating around Fintwit, where people just publish the price of electricity futures in Germany. And they say that, you know, this is up 700%, you know, no one's going to have electricity in Europe. And this is all a result of what's going on um, in the Russia-Ukraine situation. And they're partly right in the sense that Europeans are likely going to see um, electricity prices go far higher. Um, from from a political standpoint, how do you from a political standpoint and as a result from a market standpoint, how do you think this is going to resolve? Because in a way, one, if consumers are made to pay higher and crazy higher um, electricity prices, it's going to cause some level of social unrest, etc. And on the other hand, the other people who could bear the brunt are the producers, where the government enacts policy in the form of price control to just mere political pressure on these companies to prevent them from increasing prices. So those are, I guess, two broad ways it could resolve. But, you know, what are your thoughts on it? You know, I mean, I think it all depends um, wh- how, I think it all depends on how long the crisis lasts. Uh-huh. And this is why it's a typical game of chicken, like game, theoretical game of chicken. Game of chicken, of course, you know, old 1950s movies, James Dean and some other dude, they both want the girl. This is toxic masculinity, by the way. You know, it's the 50s. You know, I got I to gotta give a trigger warning here before I describe the movies. You got two guys going head to head in their like hot rods. And whoever swerves the chicken, you know, has proven that does not have sufficient toxic masculinity to go out with a girl, right? Uh, so whoever swerves and like doesn't want bodily harm is a loser, you know? So, so that game of chicken in game theory is a really, really dangerous game because both drivers assume rationality in their opponent. And so because you assume your opponent is rational, you assume they will swerve first. And so the um, the extremely, extremely dangerous outcome where both go head to head uh, produces suboptimal outcomes at a higher probability than you would think. And that's why I think Fintwit, when they talk about like how people just expect the best to happen, you know, um, that's what, financial Twitter is telling you like, Hey, a lot of observers, a lot of analysts are being extremely sanguine about the situation, but what they don't understand is both Russia and Europe are just going to go and, and hit collision head on. Um, now, what I would say is that the second order way to think about the game of chicken is that um, why are we assuming always that both drivers are in the same vehicle? You know, like why they could be driving different vehicles and what you're driving really matters. Like if you're on a tricycle, 
and your opponent is in a G-Wagon, like you're probably going to swerve, dude, or you're going to jump off your tricycle. Like this is obvious. Um, now, Russia's not on a tricycle. That's for a fact. It's driving a car, but it's probably a Lada. You know, whereas the uh, the Europeans are in a G-Wagon. And the reason I say that is that, yes, costs are huge. They're astronomical. They're 700%. They're dumb because they, you know, didn't keep their nuclear power in check. This is all true. However, there are alternatives to Russian natural gas. And the commentary I see out there, including in the media, including on Twitter, is that, oh, my God, who cares about storage levels? It's all about flows. But, guys, Europe wouldn't be at 80% storage if their flows were not, like, perfectly filled. And until August 30th, when we're like recording this, Russian exports of natural gas to the EU are roughly down by 70% over a period of time of nine months. But, but European imports of natural gas are down 5%. Let me say that again. Russian exports to the EU are down 70%. Mm -hmm. But EU imports are down 5%. How can that be? Because they found alternatives to Russian gas. Completely. They've been able to completely replace each molecule of Russian energy with a non-Russian molecule energy. Norway's exports to Europe are at, at a historic high. LNG imports are at a historic high. So now that's where the cost of electricity is the variance, right? So like Russian piped natural gas, steady contracts, much cheaper than going and bidding against China's and India's and Bangladesh's and all the other importers of LNG. But the point is that supply global supply is going to react to higher prices in europe mm. over time and the truth is europe can just go brrr, print money and pay for the extra cost and you know like i hear a lot of people saying like oh they can't do that that's stupid like guys germany spent a hundred billion euros bailing out hippo real estate in like 2010 i think it's 2010 don't quote me on that although i'm not quoting that's forget Greece, forget Greece, forget Portugal, forget Spain, forget Italy, forget how much they spent buying BTPs and all this stuff. One bank, one bank after the GFC, one bank, 100 billion euros, boom, right? For one bank, <laughs> we're talking national security. We're talking Russia, we're talking nukes, we're talking geopolitics, we're talking people with pitchforks and torches. You think they're not going to spend 500 billion euro on just subsidizing these costs until, until global supply responds? And global supply is absolutely going to respond. You know, uh, there is, uh, there's about a dozen LNG export terminals being constructed at this moment. So I see a lot of commentary again in the media, like, oh, it takes three to five years to build an export terminal. True, fact, those are facts. But it's not like we don't have any in construction. There's one in Qatar being built right now that by 2025 is going to bring on so much natural gas that six, 12 months ago, if you read about it, you would have said it was the biggest boondoggle in energy, that it was going to crash LNG prices. We were going to have a glut of supply because, oh, the Qataris are so stupid and they're building this giant LNG export terminal no one's going to need. Well, guess what? We're going to need it now. So my point is that Europeans are, they were really, really silly. They made a lot of mistakes over the last 10 years. But now they actually do hold the upper hand because they can bail out their, uh, their consumers of electricity, mainly households, over the next six to 12 months. But over the next following 12 to 24 months, global supply will meet demand. And then what's Russia going to do at that point? It has about 100, 150 BCM that's stranded 
in the Yamal Peninsula with no way to get it out of Russia. You know, so what are the Russians? And Europeans know this. And so they're telling Russia, like, hey, man, you're hurting us. We're an OECD advanced economy that can print money with downside risks. Oh, our currency is going to get cheap. We're so, so sorry about that because it's going to really hurt our economy when our currency is cheap, right? False. Exports, tourism, other reasons why uh, cheap currency is okay for the Europeans. So Europeans are going to do that. And they're telling the Russians, like, look, man, in like 24 months, we're going to replace all of your natural gas then. And you cannot replace our demand because your pipelines only go from Yamal Peninsula and the Arctic to us. So yeah. you're the one that's screwed. And then that, that poses the question, are the Russians okay? Are they cool with not making 50 bill a year for the next five to 10 years that it's going to take them to build a pipeline to China, which, oh, by the way, is going to be hundreds of billions of dollars as well. And I think the answer to that question is probably not. Mm -hmm. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And I think, you know, what was interesting was the point that you made on exports. So I think Germany for the first time ever um, in a very long time had a trade uh, deficit as opposed to a trade surplus. And one, do you think that would, do you think that was significant? And two, do you think that the broad role of Europe within the global economy is changing? No. So I don't think it's significant because it's obviously reflecting higher energy prices. Okay. You yeah. know, so like if you believe that energy prices are going to be, you know, oil is going to be at 200 bucks and natural gas is going to be uh, at current levels of prices for the next decade, it is significant. There's, you know, like Europe is going to have a trade imbalance. But that's like literally never happened in human yeah. history. You know, high oil prices are the best cure for high oil, oil prices. prices yeah. And vice versa, low oil prices are the best cure for low oil prices. So like we will have a response. And I see a lot of commentary out there that's just extrapolating stuff linearly. You know, so like, um, people extrapolate, for example, the ESG agenda linearly. There's this view that like, oh, Marco, you don't understand. It's different this time. No one wants to invest in ESG. Uh, no one wants to invest, sorry, in fossil fuels because of the ESG agenda. And I'm like, bro, like, look, $200 oil, okay, like $8 a gallon gasoline in California, like the hippies are starting to drill for oil. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is obvious. Uh -huh. This is so obvious. It's like it's like during the European migration crisis. It's exactly the same thing. When a lot of analysts out there were like, Europe is doomed. All of Africa will unload itself into Europe because of their asylum laws. And I'm like, uh, they're going to change their asylum laws. Like, you do know that can happen, right? So no, no, Europeans are too liberal for that. They'll never do this. You know, and it's like, no, what? First of all, what history of Europe have you read? To think that Europeans are liberal towards minorities, like time out. Can you please tell me what history you have read of Europe? That's the first issue. The second issue is like, no, look, the laws, the conditions will change. And, and the issue right now is that yes, ESG agenda has absolutely starved fossil fuels of mm -hmm. necessary capital. That's, that's true. That's an absolute, and there was like a timing consistency here. People who want to deal with climate change, um, they, turn off the tap of capital to fossil fuels, which is an instantaneous outcome, instantaneous. Uh -huh. But demand, the demand function for that oil has not shifted as fast as turning off the capital uh, tap. That's a problem. And I think it's pretty clear to everyone who does want and is committed to climate change and green agenda, it's pretty clear that if this goes on, the median voter is going to turn against ESG, is going to turn against climate change because oil is at 120, 150, 200 bucks. And so I suspect over the next two years, you will see CapEx flow into fossil fuels. 
you will see the West reorient itself towards like, hey, look, natural gas is pretty good alternative to coal. Let's keep burning that. And by the way, most of the decarbonization we've had in the environment has been replacement of coal with natural gas. Everybody always says that. And so I think you will see um, this crisis dissipate. It, it, it's at most, this is a 24 month crisis. Now, 24 months, I think that's a problem. I think politics in Europe goes sideways in that case. 12 months, you know, Europeans are pretty pissed generally at what Russia is doing in Ukraine. And, you know, this is the issue. Like, yes, people are mad. Yes, electricity crisis, uh, prices are huge. I think European leaders, even though it's partly their fault because they turned off the nukes, but I think they got like six months. I think they can weather this winter without getting the political comeuppance. I think, low conviction. You know, beyond, that's going to be tougher. Mm. But what they're hoping is that Russia is going to realize that they have six months to save their only pool of demand. And that's where the game of chicken is being played. And that's where Europeans are assuming the Russians were first. And I'm I'm with it. I agree with that. I, I don't think the Russians have the guts to maintain this natural gas cutoff uh, longer than six, eight months. Got it. Yeah. Yeah, I know. That makes sense. Um, Moving on, I wanted to move on and talk a little bit about China. Um. You know, broadly speaking, you know, what does the Western macro world miss about China? And two, you know, we are today, we are today, you know, we're speaking on August 30th. We had the announcement that the Chinese Congress is going to be on uh, October the 16th. So, you know, what do you think, you know, what do you think is, how do you think that's going to play out, especially with, uh, especially with regards to Xi Jinping's um, potential lifetime leadership? So I think the, the number one mistake I think Western commentators make about China is that they read this, you know, uh, Chinese analysis in geopolitics. You know, and I say that as a geopolitical guy in finance. Why do I say that? Uh, we see, when we look at China from the West, most of the commentaries like Xi Jinping is trying to assert China's place in the world. Uh -huh. Xi Jinping is trying to uh, control the party. And there's a uh, ideological component to his role. And I'm not saying that these are incorrect. I'm just saying that we need to prioritize. And so I would say that Xi Jinping's priority number one, number two, number three, number four, and number five is the same. And it's to um, stay in power, but stay in power by deleveraging the private sector. Mm -hmm. Now, I know this sounds really, really petty. And a lot of folks who kind of wandered into the conversation like children, who have done nothing but read like books about like how China's going to take some Spratly Island or some nonsense, they're going to listen to this and they're going to be like, oh my God, he's either an idiot or he works for the Chinese Communist Party. Well, the fact is, since 2017, the most intense kind of policy out of China has been focused under domestic private sector leverage. They've focused on real estate deleveraging. They've focused on introducing moral hazard into the system, mm. massive redrawing of macro and microprudential institutions. They've created new oversight bodies, regulatory bodies. Um, basically, the Chinese Communist Party is obsessed uh, with the Japanese example. You know, Japanese was on the rise in the 1980s, 1990s real estate bubble blows up, and Japan is who Japan is today. For 30 years, Japan has not mattered in any way, shape, or form geopolitically. Um, whereas in the 1980s, by the way, a lot of American commentary was like, oh my God, Japan is back with a rise. We're going to have to deal with them. You know, They're going to stop being our ally. There was a lot of like concern. I mean, we had a trade war with Japan in the 1980s. Um, obviously, much different situation because they were obviously an ally under the American nuclear umbrella and so on. Um, I think 
that's really important because that deleveraging agenda has, I think, run its course. Um, and what I mean by that is that I don't think China gets the luxury of having a tea party. You know, it just doesn't. Like America could have this movement to limit private sector leverage and public sector leverage at the same time. And that's because of America's wealth. And that's because of American political system that's relatively, um, you know, um, anti-fragile. Yeah. Um, so the United States of America chose to deleverage the public sector as the private sector was deleveraging after the 2010 midterm election. And by the way, most economists completely ignore this. When they talk about the secular stagnation of the last cycle, you hear a lot of nonsense about demographics or technology or blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. The reason we had substandard growth, the reason we had the jobless recovery in the US was a choice. The private sector deleveraged, not for a choice, but because it was over leveraged. But the public sector decided not to leverage up to offset the deleveraging in the private sector. That's what caused substandard growth. Fiscal policy in the US was a headwind to growth from 2011 to about 2015 until Trump got elected and was like, YOLO. Right? So, like this moment, when the Tea Party won the midterm election, took Obama by the ear and said, hey, come here, let's cut public spending. That was a really important moment because it created a headwind from the public sector. China's basically been doing that off and on since 2017. I don't think they have the luxury to do that because their private sector is massively leveraged. And so I, I expect the public sector to re-lever. And that's why this October Congress and the March changeover in government, which might be actually more important than the October Congress. I think sometimes between November and March, policymakers in China are going to have to abandon Xi Jinping's number one priority, which has been deleveraged. You know, like, and, and I mean, to, to make to make American listeners of this podcast like just light themselves on fire. Think of Xi Jinping like a Tea Party candidate who won the presidency, basically. He's obsessed with this issue of private sector leverage and he hasn't wanted to step up on the public side. I think he's going to have to. He's going to have to, to avert like French Revolution risk. So that's why this is a hugely momentous moment, by the way, in, in global macro. If, if China does re-leverage on the public side, that will restart the commodity super cycle, which since May has been sputtering. And it will probably offset um, a lot of the malaise in assets of uh, China beta plays, like Japanese equities or European equities. These high beta to China economies and markets that really don't have any sui generis, any like domestic, um, you know, um, domestic way to re-stimulate. You've got the yen and the euro, which have massively fallen. But their economies are basically geared to demand of China. And mm -hmm. if China like pulls that public sector infrastructure lever, that fixed asset investment lever, because their private sector is in a decade-long deleveraging, I think that's going to be a pretty profound moment in macro. And that's why we have to watch very carefully what happens to the Politburo Standing Committee makeup. So there's rumors now flying out of China that the premier and that the Politburo Standing Committee will not be filled with Xi Jinping allies. There will still be pro-growth, kind of Keynesian, semi-socialist, you know, yeah. um, guys. And I think that's really, really important because if that's the case, then that increases the probability that we have significant stimulus out of China that upends a lot of the macro trades that people are in right now. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, with, with the initial point you made about how the, how the slow growth post-2008 was a choice, I think there's a book called The Paradox of Risk by Angel Ubide. I don't know if you've read it, but it sort of makes a similar point about how central banks and to an extent um, austerity was the 
was it was a big part of what happened post 2008 and you know going back to china where what what was interesting was when we saw uh, evergrande and other property developers start to uh, start to collapse and start to file for bankruptcy you know the government just let them collapse like the government in a way just did not step in and do you think do you think we're going to end up seeing something like do, do you think you know it's safe to extrapolate that kind of behavior where if xi jinping um continues to be president of china uh post the congress you know we're going to end up seeing policies like this where the government simply does not step in and you know whatever happens happens i mean it's going to depend on on you know the negotiations over the next month and a half and if the rumors in china are true and there's a lot of rumors yeah. flying around it's a very rumor heavy market that's why you know we have a shanghai office that's why my second in command my chief strategist is in shanghai because uh because china is a very important micro um, actor and if you don't have kind of source on the ground it's it's a really difficult market to analyze so um i can't give you an answer right now sri but my suspicion is that if the rumors are true and if the polarization committee is not going to just be filled with like 9 11 13 xi jinping allies then yes you should expect marginally less focus on regulation marginally less focus on the leveraging and marginally more focused on like, hey, let's let's have stability of growth. I mean, Lee Keqiang made a very, very, very clear speech um, a couple of weeks ago where he, this is the premier, outgoing premier who has been seen as a kind of like an opponent to Xi Jinping. I think that's too hard. I mean, he just has a different philosophy. And he basically said like, look, we're an emerging market economy still. And we need growth to pay for all the things we want to do, including zero COVID policy. You want to have zero COVID policy? You want to test people every day? Cool. Guess what? It costs money. Guess what you need if you if it costs money? You need growth. Yeah. So we need to support growth. And that's the, the two philosophies, I think, that are clashing in China. One is kind of an Austrian school, mm-hmm. you know, of Xi Jinping. That's why I call him the Tea Party ruler of China. Like his view is like, look, man, like we have to deleverage the private sector. And no, the public sector should not be providing a stopgap because that introduces, that, that, that removes moral hazard from, you know, the economy. In many ways, that is really impressive and you got to give credit to Xi Jinping for being willing to impose pain on the system. The other side of China is a more old school, more Keynesian, more sort of like, hey, look, man, like there's sure, let's do all that, but let's also put a stop gap in growth, you know, because we kind of want to stay in power. Um, And I think that on balance, I think Xi Jinping is starting to realize that he does need that growth. Why? Common prosperity. Like, if you think about it, Sri, the whole point of common prosperity in 2021 was this realization by Xi Jinping and, and others in China that, like, hey, income inequality gap has widened because of the breakneck pace of growth, but it's now widening because of a lack of growth and lack of opportunities for a lot of college graduates to enter the labor market, to buy real estate, to get married, to have kids, and so on. So, you know, like, how are you going to both deleverage, be an Austrian, you know, be a kind of like a fiscal conservative and resolve income inequality. That's not going to happen. Yeah, it's not going to happen. So I think so. I think this is a very important thing you brought up. I'm glad you did. Um, and honestly, from from a market macro perspective, it's even more important than talking about U.S.-China conflict or Taiwan issues and stuff like that, because because the truth is, and again, a lot of people in the West don't want to hear this, but Chinese policymakers spend like you know 85 percent of their time on these the leveraging issues. They spend far less time on the, you know, like the epochal conflict with the United States of America or Taiwan or other issues. They are much more focused on the domestic side. And so the markets will probably respond much more to their 
the tweaking of their macroprudential regulation, fiscal policy, public versus private investment. All those things are going to really matter a lot more over the next six months. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the other big geopolitical aspect when it comes to China that's come up in the news and come up, uh, come up in the finance community recently has been this potential invasion of Taiwan by the Chinese. And, uh, and usually the argument made for why the invasion won't happen is one, it would likely have to be an amphibious invasion. So both from air, from land and from, uh, from air, land and sea. And then on top of that, uh, if you think about Russia and Russia, the Russian army or the U.S. army, you know, they fought battles in Afghanistan, they fought in Syria, they fought in Iraq, etc. But then when it comes to the Chinese army, they've not done, they've, relative to these countries, they've not done as much fighting. So in a way, they're relatively untested army. How do you, you know, what are the probabilities of a potential conflict happening? And if it does happen, you know, how do you think it will play out? So I think Taiwan is very clearly the most serious geopolitical risk in the world. Yep. Why? Uh, because when you think about risk, risk is a combination of potential market impact and probability. So the reason we need to spend time on Taiwan, even though the probability of a military reunification with Taiwan is low, even though the probability is low, in my view, if it were to happen, the market impact would be uh, you know, extraordinary because you're talking about the second largest economy in the world. You know, Russia... We wouldn't be talking about Russia if it wasn't exporting commodities. I mean, its economy is smaller than the state of Texas. So Russia is is got this quirk that it exports a lot of you know hydrocarbons and God bless them. That's an important thing. So we need to talk about them. I'm not diminishing it, but like the truth is, nobody cares about like Russia uh, in any other way. China is the second largest economy. It's a source of demand. Um, you know, it, it would be it would be the most significant event I think since the Second World War. So. Absolutely, I think this is something we need to talk about. The issue is the probability, I think, is low. And the probability is low for a, for a whole host of reasons. Um, and the things you mentioned, the military complexity of invading Taiwan is really important. What we can add to that also is that one way in which Taiwan is relevant for China is its semiconductor industry. And I mean, a lot has been written about this. And look, the truth is like, you know, this isn't, it's not clear, there's no evidence, but there's a lot of smart people to, who suspect that every single fab in Taiwan is dynamited. You know, so if China were to invade Taiwan, it's not like the Taiwanese would be like, oh, cool, you you know, we're the goose with the golden egg, here's the golden egg. No, 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 there, there's an implicit understanding. You're not gonna get the technology you need. That's the first issue. The second issue is that, um, the second issue, and I want to go into macroeconomics here because you've already outlined the military yep. constraints to China. Um, the macroeconomics are also important. As I've said, China has a private sector leverage problem. You know, when the when the American consumer decided to take a, a decade-long break from consuming, um, China panicked. And it said, what do we do? So they leveraged their own domestic, corporate, and private consumer. So this is a really important thing that most people don't understand. The secular stagnation of the last cycle was epic. American consumer, who was essentially the uh, growth engine of the planet by consuming more than they probably should, just stopped and said, you know what, we need to fix our leverage. So they did for a decade. China, which was absolutely geared towards the American consumer, the entire Chinese economy was basically geared to Americans buying things they didn't need with an interest rates they didn't deserve like, you know, like China panicked. And what China did is it 
increase the leverage of its domestic consumers. So to the point where the private sector right now is more leveraged than some measures in China than in the US, which is in, which is pretty crazy because they are still an emerging market economy with a lot, lot much lower GDP per capita level. But now that that gravy train of demand is over, what's going to help China grow over the next decade? If domestic demand is permanently stifled by the leverage what are they going to rely on? And the answer is, I mean, I have the answer. It's an objective fact. We know what the answer is because for the last two years, the only part of the Chinese economy that's done anything is exports. And my point earlier, when you asked me about the, the changeover in China, was also that they're going to pull the investment lever at some point because they have to. So the two growth engines of China for the next decade are exports, which means external demand, not Russian demand, Western demand. And the second is investment for which they're going to need foreign capital because they're very, 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 very close to having a current account deficit. So yes. what my, my point is that the Chinese economy is becoming more, not less, more addicted to foreign demand for goods and foreign demand for Chinese financial assets to finance the eventual current account deficit. It doesn't seem to me like this is a country that's about to you know, militarily uh, reunify with its wayward province of Taiwan. On top of that, on top of that, unlike Russia, unlike Iraq, unlike Iran, unlike a lot of naughty, naughty countries over the past couple of decades, China's not a commodity exporter. And by the way, there is a reason why commodity exporters tend to be members of the axis of evil and naughty countries. Like Canada, by the way, there's that beautiful maple leaf flag behind you. I mean, Canada would make a great axis of evil country, right? Great. Like if Canada decided to finally settle that issue with Denmark with arms as it should have, not with negotiations, not with you Greece. know, and invade invade Greenland, which yeah. clearly is part of our heritage, not theirs. We would we would do great. What's what's America gonna do to Canada? Like impose embargo on the oil that America needs? No. <laughs> no. So so I mean, this is just my appeal to Justin. Like, hey, just embrace it, you know, commodity exporter, let's go. On a serious note, though, China, unlike most naughty, naughty countries, is not a commodity export, it's a commodity importer. And that's another reason why if they chose, if they elected to reunify with Taiwan militarily, the problem would be that they would be extremely vulnerable to interdiction of their supplies, which they do not have enough of. And again, a lot of people bandy Russia-China alliance, they throw it around like it's a real thing. It's not a real thing. There's not enough infrastructure built. There's some in the Eastern Siberian oil and natural gas fields, but those are not the main ones that Russia has. China will be vulnerable to the U.S. Navy, to an embargo on commodities and critical technologies that it still needs. And so that's why I think that, I think China's going to remain focused for the remainder of this decade on dealing with its internal economic problems, of which there are a host of. Right. And yeah, you know, I would agree that Justin Trudeau has been naughty enough as it is. So. <laughs> well, you can always be naughtier though. Like, you know, I, and by the way, I don't really care. I don't, I don't assess leaders on the naughty scale, but I, but you know, if Canada chose to invade Greenland, yeah, I think that there would be nothing that the world community could do given commodity exports of Canada. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, the other, the, you know, the other important aspect when it comes to China is if you think about how the private sector is leveraged, I think what Michael Pettis has talked about is if you break it down into the household and the corporate sector, the corporate sector, just companies and specifically real estate has been extremely leveraged. But on the other hand, uh, Michael Pettis' situation, uh, Michael Pettis' sort of response to how this would, how, they, how he would want to change the structure of aggregate demand within China is that he wants the consumption function to grow, the household consumption function. And 
And, and you know that's sort of his solution. That's that's sort of his biggest solution to you know what China should do about their debt problem. I don't know if you would broadly agree or disagree with them. I mean, I would, but like you know, I, as I always joke, I want to have abs, Sri. I want a lot of things. I don't want to work out. <laughs> but it's not going to work out. You know, it's not. It's not going to happen. Like, look, the point is, uh, it's just it, there's just no way for the domestic uh, demand function to be recovered. And actually, I think zero COVID policy. I get a lot of questions from my clients, um, you know, who are very sophisticated investors, institutional uh, investors, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds. They keep asking me, but Marco, this is all a function of zero COVID. Once it's gone, it's it's all good. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Zero COVID could be gone tomorrow. I'd still be bearish in domestic demand. Domestic demand in China is stifled by leverage. And it's stifled by leverage. Like they are where we were in 2009, 2010. It's not coming back for a decade. There's nothing they can do about that. And that's why I, I agree with Michael Pettis. And like, he's, he's, he's a great scholar of China. I recommend everyone to read him. Um, I just don't think that there's anything that they can do in the short term yeah, to deal with this. They, they have a balance sheet recession. You know, the classical Richard Koo, over-indebted private sector, public sector has to come up and and offset that and they've refused to do that because xi jinping as i said is quote-unquote austrian you know and i think that eventually he'll have to succumb to the pressures and we'll see what happens in october but listen if the october um congress comes back and in november we have a polar standing committee that's you know just xi jinping allies you know there's more downside risk to the chinese economy which means there's going to be a lot more political risk domestically and maybe in that scenario you know trying to find an external Threshold release valve might make sense. And yeah. then you could see a lot more aggressive uh, China over the next uh, several years. But the only issue is that if we look at Empiric Street, if we look at what China's been doing over the next last five years, and this is going to be extremely unpopular, this is going to get me canceled. But if you look at what China's been doing over the last five years, China's actually reduced its geopolitical assertiveness. When was the last time? You spent a moment of your time discussing South China Sea. When was the last time China got into a little, you know, tiff with some Philippine fishermen or a Vietnamese oil platform or a Japanese navy over the Senkaku Dayu Islands? Like, when was the last time that China got into a geopolitical crisis with one of the uh, countries that are littoral or that are above the South China Sea? The answer is like 2016-17. Yeah. Now, yes, there was a crackdown on Hong Kong protests. There is this current crisis over Taiwan, but like both of them were imposed in China, not necessarily, okay, Hong Kong, uh, that's not entirely true. Of course, China imposed um, the, the, the sedition law on Hong Kong and then protests happened. They didn't expect that. They didn't really crack down on them. Mm. I would argue I would argue the 1990s China, 1980s China sends in the PLA. They didn't do that. They, they let Hong Kong police treat the protesters with rubber bullets. So it was a completely different kind of a response than you would have expected. Yeah. Um, and now with the Taiwan issue, actually China is trying to dampen domestic nationalism through various ways. Mm. My point is that China over the last five years, if we're objective, if we st step back from the anti-China bias, which I understand it's a geopolitical conflict, you know, God bless America is gonna have its propaganda. God bless China is gonna have its own, all is fair in love and war. But the point is that if you step back and actually look at what's happening, China has actually circled the wagons and focused much more domestically. And I expect that they're going to do that over the next couple of years as well. 
Yep. And you know, Marco, it's going to be a great title. It's going to be Xi Jinping as an Austrian by Marco Papin. <laughs> um, uh, but a bit more seriously, um, you know, Mike Pettis has again highlighted the point that you make about domestic consumption. So that recently we saw that, you know, China broke the record for the largest trade surplus and the largest export figures. But the problem that, you know, Mike Pettis clearly highlights is that these exports that are responsible for so much of China, of the Chinese economy, they're not being recycled into domestic demand. You know, they're not, no. we're not seeing higher wages. We're not seeing, you know, the people start to consume more um, as a result of these export earnings um, being recycled. And so, you know, the domestic demand, as, as you uh, very correctly point out, remains weak. Um, also, also, just very quickly, it's also a temporary binge on goods because of COVID. So yeah. like those exports are going to come down. And that's why I suspect the private sector investments are going to have to come up to offset domestic deleveraging of the private sector and dampening of export growth. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, you know, going, uh, you know, moving broader, uh, you know, what is deglobalization going to look like? So, you know, for example, um, I think when you when you spoke to Mike Green about a year and a half ago, he sort of, sort of Mike pointed out how, you know, when the world did not have PP&D, so, you know, the the masks and all of that, you know, we had to, we saw that the supply chains were all based in China. And, you know, we started seeing uh, the supply chain dislocations, you know, play a big role in causing the inflation that we've seen. Um, and so sort of the argument has been that the West would not want to repeat this and you want to start, to, you, you'd want these supply chains to come back to the US or to Europe. And obviously producing those same goods within the US or Europe is going to be more expensive compared to producing them in China. Um, but what is deglobalization just going to look like? So look, I mean, you just quoted that Chinese trade surplus is it's the highest ever. You know, so um, I hear a lot. Imports not going up at the same time. No, no, yeah, that, that, that's fair. That's fair, they have domestic problems, but like the trade balance between US and China has become, again, favorable to China. Um, I get it, that's COVID related, it's temporary. At the same time, if America ever had an opportunity to slap 40, 60% import tariffs in China, it was during COVID pandemic. You know, especially when Donald Trump was in charge, when Donald Trump had Twitter, blamed, blamed, yeah, had Twitter and blamed China for COVID-19, like overtly, you know? And, you know, and there's some truth. You could argue that China mismanaged the initial, like, part. Even if you don't believe in, like, conspiracy theories or lab thesis, like, hey, they didn't close their borders. There's all sorts of ways that American policymakers could have, could have cut the trade linkages with China, their overt geopolitical rival, and they didn't. Mm -hmm. So I think that deglobalization, look, we are the, like I wrote um, an analysis in 2014 and I hate going back and being like, yeah, I was great. But like, look, in 2014, I wrote a piece that I'm very proud of. Um, and it's, and I basically like anchored it on my Twitter as like the anchored tweet, why? Because I think it was really what is happening today. And it's titled Apex of Globalization. It's all downhill from here. And I really, and I, I was going to call it end of globalization. And my good friend, Jim Malona said, no, 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 don't call it that. Because it's binary. It's zero to one. You know, and it's not going to be zero, right, Marco? And I was like, yeah, you're right. It's not. So deglobalization is a poor term because it assumes we're going to some sort of a, you know, um, antebellum-like world. Like, pre-US-China conflict world, uh, pre-Cold War world, where it was like two blocks. It's not going to be like that. We're just marginally eroding the highly globalized world. That is gone. We're going to have a bifurcated high-tech world 
where China and the US are going to be in different high-tech environments. But honestly, that's been the case since 2011, 2012, 2013. Yeah. Like China, US are on completely different like social media platforms. And it's like, okay, the world goes on. So that's going to happen with high-tech goods. But when it comes to like commodities, when it comes to um, a lot of like 20th century goods, mm -hmm. we're going to continue to see globalization. Now, the supply chains are going to be reorganized, uh -huh. but they're not going to disappear. And I think that that's an important point. Like deglobalization is a poor term. Apex of globalization, like post-apex globalization is what we should call it. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, when it comes to, um, so, you know, when, when it comes to what you were talking about in your book, Geopolitical Alpha, you sort of highlight what's called the Buenos Aires consensus. Um, and, well, and, you know, your ideas around the median voter theorem, and you sort of describe how the voter has moved to the left. And we're sort of seeing the signs of that right now as well. So I think a few months back when the UK announced that it was going to give, uh, you know, low income families more money in order to, you know, pay in order to be able to afford their bills. You know, what's interesting is, you know, you can make the argument that what the government should be doing is they should be subsidizing producers so that production costs come down rather than subsidizing consumers so that they're able to, there, there's a case to be made that way. But, but, you know, what we're actually seeing is we're seeing consumers get more money. Uh, you know, how have your views evolved from there? I mean, I would argue that the media, I would argue that the thesis, that your thesis that the median voter has moved to the left, I would argue that's become stronger. But how has the Buenos Aires consensus uh, played since you've written your book? Uh, so, I mean, first of all, it helped me get the COVID markets right. Yeah. Like, it was the reason I was maniacally bullish in 2020. Uh, like, because it was like, look, they, they will stop at nothing. And that's because the median voter, especially in the United Kingdom and the U.S., the two most laissez-faire, most center-right economically countries, has moved the most to the left. Now, yeah. very important for your viewers watching this who are lighting themselves on fire right now and ready to send us hate mail, just to be clear, when I say the media voter has moved to the left, I mean purely on the macroeconomic, macro policy uh, issues. We're not talking social issues. We're not talking cultural issues. We're not talking about those because I don't care. You know, like, like really don't care. Uh, when it comes to macro policy issues, Americans are basically socialists now. You know, they just are. I mean, like, the conservatives, the Republican Party, is campaigning on essentially left-wing economic agenda. I mean, with some with some sort of like, uh, you know, lip service to the old laissez-faire tropes. But no one out there is campaigning on being a fiscal conservative. Like, I don't hear anybody in Congress for the 2022 midterm election, like saying like, we're gonna like balance the budget by increasing taxes, uh, sorry, by cutting budget deficits, by cutting the government spending. No, not, not at all. The, the Tea Party movement is gone and it's essentially all just populism. Um, I mean, Republicans don't even use the term middle class anymore. They use the term working class. Yeah. So what I'm getting at here is that I think that this is still there. Now you could argue though, that fiscal thrust is negative. I mean, not, not arguing this is a fact. We probably have a fiscal cliff recession right now. We are in a recession, two quarters negative growth. Most likely it's a fiscal cliff recession because fiscal cliff has, has, has fiscal thrust is turned negative. Why? Because we had so much stimulus. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of people say, well, Marco, look, fiscal thrust is negative and central banks are raising interest rates. So clearly the Buenos Aires consensus is less relevant for markets right now. I don't think so. I don't think so. I have we we have this pocket, pocket, this moment. And by the way, no long-term trend is just a straight line. There's like reversals. And we're in a reversal right now. Central bankers have this moment, this window to be tough, to to kind of be stern, to you know say, hey, hey, the party's going on too long. Let's raise some interest rates. Let's see when we're close to a recession, like a deep one, a real one. Let's see how they react to that. 
I would argue that my thesis will reassert itself at these moments of pain and that you will see policymakers basically go reach back for the unorthodox populist policies. I mean, Sunak, you know, over in, in the United Kingdom, why has he lost? Why is he going to lose the trust? I mean, like he's he's basically losing because he had a modicum, just a modicum of like conservative, fiscally responsible like platform, like just a little bit. He was like, hey, maybe we raise some taxes. Huh? And it's like, no, you know, let's go with the with the other candidate who's just going to burn money. And I think that tells you all you need to know. Mm-hmm. But what's important about the Buenos Aires consensus, though, to just finish it, it's not a thesis that every country in the world is going to go to the left. This is very important. The thesis is that the United States and the United Kingdom in particular are most moving to the left on economic policy. And I think eventually that's going to catch up with the U.S. dollar. It's already caught up with the pound. Eventually, I think once foreign investors step back and realize, wait a minute, American inflation is the most heterogeneous, more likely to persist. I think at that point, uh, there's going to be downsides to the U.S. dollar. But I've been wrong for 18 months on that. So, hey, you know, feel free to just say, Marco, don't ever make a call on the U.S. dollar ever again. That's totally fair. You know, I'll, I'll accept that. I'm starting to love the title now. So it's Xi, uh, Xi Jinping is an Austrian and the Americans are socialists. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, so, you know, I wanted to wrap up the podcast by sort of talking about one more thing. So, you know, when it comes to the fintech community broadly, uh, the uh, uh, one of the biggest um, geopolitical figures there is Peter Snehan. And as much as he doesn't focus ex- exclusively on on financial markets, you know, a lot of people within the fintech community pay attention to him and, I wanted to ask, you know, where specifically do you find disagreement with the broader views of Peter Zahan? So I, I haven't read his latest book, but Peter and I worked together at Stratfor. He was actually my first boss yep. uh, at Stratfor, like direct report. You know, George Friedman was obviously the founder and uh, the boss of everyone at Stratfor. But like my first report was to Peter. Uh, it was great working for him. I learned a lot from Peter. And I would say that I probably the one thing I cherished the most from working with Peter was was finding levity in 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 sort of these very heavy subjects. I mean, we're talking heavy subjects and like having levity and a, a sort of a, you know, nonchalant um, uh, approach to them when you don't take yourself too seriously, I think is very, very important. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise you get preachy, you know, and you get like normative and then your analysis suffers. So um, I love that. I love that about Peter. He's a funny guy. I mean, if you ever see him live or if you read his books, it's like you will get cracked up. I tried to do the same in my book, although mine was much more theoretical and framework-like. So it was a lot more boring. Uh, tell us than I would... no, I'm kidding. <laughs> 100%. I mean, there's like even math in my book, you know, like so that 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 was like literally there's a chapter that says you will fall asleep reading this chapter. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, so I think generally speaking, I think Peter's of the view, you know, that, uh, and a lot of people are, you know, this is not just Peter, but the view is like, look, United States of America is is endowed with geographical advantages. Advantages, exactly. Uh, that it doesn't deserve. He's very quick to point out, like, hey, look, we didn't do anything to deserve these, but we have them. And so, two oceans, you know, really uh, sophisticated river system, like fertile land, lots of natural resources. So, what's going to happen over the next decade is the rest of the world is going to, like, you know, there's a multipolar world, sure. No one's in charge, sure. He takes those as assumptions. Um, but the US is going to win because it's just going to draw inward. Chaos reigns everywhere else. And the US emerges in the 2030s as the most powerful country in the world. 
And I think that I don't disagree with that. You know, I think that that's generally speaking, probably the way the world's going to go. Yeah. But, but it is linear forecasting. You know, the United States of America just had the best decade in a very long time. I mean, performance of the markets, like performance of the economy relative to the rest of the world. The U.S. absolutely crushed it over the last decade. So that's the first issue. The second issue is that very rarely do hegemons like preserve their advantages purely because of geographical advantages. Mm -hmm. And this is because, um, and I'm going to say something controversial, geography is mutable. Geography changes. And it changes because of technologies. It changes because of uh, new powers rising and falling. Centers of trade and economic growth change. So think about the Mediterranean, which is Latin for center of the earth. Okay. Like the reason the Roman Empire was so important is because Rome is literally in the center of the center of the earth. And same with the Egyptians, you know, no one could uh, invade Egypt as long as the sea was not like you couldn't go across the sea with the ship. But then once ships were, it became. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So like, like, and and eventually Mediterranean went from being the center of the earth to being a lake, you know, (laughs) right, right. So like. My point about this is that when you look at long course of history, the rise of the United Kingdom, Industrial Revolution, Spain and Portugal vying for like the entire planet against one another. When you look at all of those, most of those emerge not out of strength or plenty. They emerge out of uh, need, yeah. out, of, out of weakness. Right. Technological, technological innovation in particular does not arise because you have everything, all your ducks in order. It emerges because you have critical needs. And what I would argue is that the last decade was great for the United States of America. The tech revolution was awesome. But most of the innovation that happened in Silicon Valley is useless for geopolitical uh, contestation. Yeah. Uh, Like, you know, all these apps we have, like none of them are gonna help in a conflict between um, uh, superpower peers. And what's interesting to me is China got a lot of criticism in 2021 for going after its TNT sector. Uh-huh. But I think the Chinese policymakers realized this. They said, like, look, this, like, you know, these apps are not going to help us if we have to fight the United States of America. We need to focus on hard tech. Yeah. And that's why, that's why I would say that extrapolating linearly from current geographical endowments and current um, just general demographic endowments is a mistake. Um, and most most long-term forecasting based on demographics and geography, I just don't think is is correct. I mean, you could have argued, for example, that the most demographically endowed region on the planet is North Africa. And, just then Arab, and you're not seeing, yeah. Well, I mean, the Arab Spring was a result yeah. of supposed demographic advantages. You know, so like, I, I really think that that's where I probably disagree. I think that very long, very long-term, uh, very long-term forecasting which is cool and fun, requires actually um, you to step back and just take a dart and just throwing it on the board. Because I'll tell you this, I'll tell you this. In 1300s, if you walked into a geopolitical forecasting boardroom and said, hey guys, you know what I think? I think Portugal. Yeah, I think Portugal is going to do really good in the 1400s and 50s. You would have been laughed out of the room. Somebody in the room would have been like, dude, Portugal? The Moors didn't conquer Portugal because they were like, felt sorry for it. They were like, yeah, let them let them stay. Let them be the Christian kingdom in like Iberia. It's okay. Like, we don't like they're so cute. 
you know, they're starving to that from the bubonic plague. Like, ah, it's okay. United Kingdom, United Kingdom in the 1200s ran out of trees. Yeah. Ran out of trees. Everybody in Europe was like, ha, have fun with that coal stuff. You're going to be dirty all day. We're going to keep burning wood. And, they, and the, the Brits were like, hmm, coal, what is this? You know, and then suddenly, boom, industrial revolution. So I think that that's something that uh, is missing today in a lot of analysis out there. There's just, you know, a lot of linear extrapolation. And ultimately, I think a great example of that is this year, you know, like earlier this year, January of January 1st, 2022. Um, if you had anybody in the geopolitical community on your show, me included, we would have talked in the 60 minutes, 50 minutes about U.S. China. And guess what? Russia invades Ukraine, you know, and and. And suddenly that is the topic du jour. Yeah. Um, we're, we're in a world where I think linear extrapolation is just going to fail. Yeah, I completely agree. And Marco, you know, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was wonderful having you. Uh, before I let you go, could you tell the audience where they can find you and more of your work? Uh, so, um, you know, just, I guess, tweet me, geo underscore Popich. Um, also um, on the website, clocktowergroup.com. Um, feel free to contact us through that. And uh, also, I guess, some LinkedIn, too. Yeah. And make sure to get his books, uh, his book, uh, Geopolitical Off. I think it's phenomenal when it comes to uh, the intersection of markets, finance, and geopolitics. And so with that, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Mark. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you, Sri. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe, and we'll see you next time.